All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, a podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. This episode will be about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. This will be found at actualanarchy.com slash 35. Robert has joined me and also the boys from Liberty Weekly are here. And uh, before we introduce them, I just want to mention a little bit of housekeeping, like we just told you about on our previous episode, The Watchmen. We have introduced a tip jar page on our website, so it's at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. That has a listing of all of our affiliate programs, all of our merchandise that's available. We've got hats, mugs, hoodies, wife beaters, t-shirts, all that stuff available. We also have curated uh, book listings and a few other things, including our Patreon page, which has a whole bunch of goodies that at various levels you can get behind the scenes, you can get early access, you can you can view live us doing a recording, a few other good things in there. But other than that, just want to say hello to Robert, how are you doing? And then we'll introduce our guests. Well, all right, all right, all right. It's uh, me back for another episode here with the boys from Liberty Weekly. And we're going to be talking about Rogue One. And I know it's a movie that happened a while ago, but it's still the most recent uh, Star Wars movie, and whether these characters in this movie were moral actors, or were they really good guys, or did we care about them at all, what would happen if they actually win, uh, we're going to get into all kinds of stuff like that in this movie review, so I uh, hope you uh, enjoy, and do real good, Daniel. How are you doing, man? I'm doing real well, and how are you boys from Liberty Weekly doing? It's uh, Pat and Jerry, is that right? Yes, correct. We're doing good. Yes, we are. <laughs> good, good, get that confirmation. <laughs> yeah, so we've already been chatting for a little bit, so so I, I made it weird. I made it weird. But uh, Liberty Weekly, you guys do a, uh, is it a weekly podcast? And then uh, also do some blog posts, and one of your articles is about Rogue One, and it's hosted on our site as well. And uh, we have an RSS feed showing all of your stuff on our website, which is pretty cool, helping out with uh, getting some content. And I really enjoy your guys' work. We were commenting earlier that talking to you now is is kind of weird because I've listened to your show three or four times, and now I'm getting responses. <laughs> yeah, it's the same effect here. <laughs> it's a little eerie. So uh, just for our audience who's going to be listening to the show, why don't you give them a rundown on what you guys do, what what is your website about, what's your show about, and maybe a little background on uh, how you guys met and how you ended up doing the website and show that you do now. Yeah, so I started Liberty Weekly uh, last summer. as It was a part of the Tom Woods deal with the Bluehost stuff. And uh, so we got into that. I started off doing blog posts, and it kind of, um, I just kind of, I shelved it for a while. And then we were, Jerry and I were friends, and we were talking about doing a podcast because uh, Jerry's the, the only other voluntarist that I know in person. And so we would always get together and we'd talk for hours about, you know, 
everything. And then I was just like, well, why don't we just make a podcast? Because we really enjoy people's content and listening to, um, you know, whatever we can online about voluntarism, agorism, you know, ANCAP stuff. And uh, so it just naturally kind of flowed from there. Uh, but it's been a really great experience. It's been a lot of fun, especially connecting with people and then having these conversations. It's just, you know, people I never would have interacted with otherwise. And it's been it's been great. But, uh, Jerry, do you want to say a little bit about how we met? Yeah, sure. Uh, we were roommates. And when we met, uh, Pat was actually a minarchist at the time. And I I feel like I have some responsibility in helping convince him to become an anarchist but we lived together for part of a year and then we started hanging out and talking to each other a little time you know after a gap and i suddenly discovered that he had become an anarchist and that was pretty exciting to me but yeah we we met together and we we've had similar life experiences we went to the same college for a bit and we both like mashuga a lot so yes. <laughs> we've been we've been looking for an excuse to talk about Mashuga or like metal on the show, but I think it might We're getting know. closer every day. Yeah. <laughs> um but but the show uh Liberty Weekly Podcast is it's a bi weekly show, uh which is a little ironic. But like while we try to appeal to newcomers to libertarianism or voluntarism, mostly I guess for people who are a little more privy to the philosophy and to economics. Uh, we get in some detailed discussions. Uh, we also do current events. Uh, we talk about kind of what's going on, but also uh, we get into the theory as well. And we also kind of one of the themes that we've been developing has been about living free because living in this society, living under government can be pretty hard. Uh, it can be pretty isolating at times and it can be kind of a struggle. And so we talk about, you know, living free and uh, just doing everything that you can to escape from under the thumb of the state and not letting it kind of dictate what your life is or the way that you react to things. And so I think that that's been a positive message. Uh, but another theme is reading a lot and experiencing the Mises Institute and what they have to offer. The Mises summer program was this week, and that was pretty awesome. And so we try and take the knowledge that we accumulate in our own lives and share it with the audience. Right, very great. Very cool. And and just to be clear for the audience, that's at libertyweekly.net. That's that's the right URL? Yep, that's correct. All right. Well, and then your, I, your podcast is available where all podcasts are sold? Yes. Yep. Um, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iTunes. Excellent. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and, and I, I vouch for you guys. I have listened to a couple of episodes, and it's really good. You guys have a nice rapport with each other, and I felt like I, I learned quite a bit. And like I said, it's it's weird talking to you now, so... <laughs> Yeah, well, we really appreciate that. We enjoy your show as well. And, uh, you know, I, we, we've been trying to have more guests on or be on other people's shows, but we, we had Nick Carroll from Liberty and Tech on, I think in episode 12, libertyweekly.net forward slash 12. And, uh, it was just good to connect and, you know, get those, uh, the networking going. All right. Very good. And you guys had suggested that we do this movie, Rogue One. Uh, is there any particular standout reason why you wanted to do this one? I think it's such low-hanging fruit, and I kind of like the topic of... Um, I saw a lot of parallels with the American Revolution and uh, kind of a takeover, in a sense. And I, I wanted to critique the Rebel Alliance because everyone... It, I, I kind of identify a lot of... Um, I don't know, lefties that really like Star Wars, and it just seemed ironic to me in a certain sense, so I wanted to poke at them. That's always a good thing to do. 
Yeah, so I, I wrote this this article uh, last summer, I think it was. When did we first connect? I don't remember. Oh, in February. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that might have been when I when I grabbed it. But if if you wrote it last summer, when did this movie even come out? Was it no it was, Christmas or? Yeah, no, I I remember now. I wrote this article in February. All right, and people can find that on the Actual Anarchy site. Just in the search bar, put Rogue One or Star Wars, and it'll be one of the top results. All right, guys. Well, why don't we get into this movie? What we generally do on our show is talk about the Google description and whether it's right or wrong. It's oftentimes been wrong, though they've been uh, they've been batting a little bit better lately. We haven't had too much to quibble with them on uh, on some of our recent episodes. But I'll just go ahead and read that. So this is Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Came out last year, two hours and thirteen minutes. Ninety percent of Google users recommend it. It's got an eighty-five percent Rotten Tomatoes rating, so pretty good, well received. Came out, yeah, it looks like December of last year, December 10th, and it has made $1 billion. So I guess that's pretty good. And the description says, Former scientist Galen Erso lives on a farm with his wife and young daughter Jin. His peaceful existence comes crashing down when the evil Orson Krennic takes him away from his beloved family. Many years later, Galen becomes the Empire's lead engineer for the most powerful weapon in the galaxy, the Death Star. Knowing that her father holds the key to its destruction, Jin joins forces with a spy and other resistance fighters to steal the space station's plans for the Rebel Alliance. Any any quibbles with that, Robert? Uh, no, that sounds pretty good. I mean, it's a very condensed description, but that's what you want to hear in a Google description. I, I, don't, I can't really quibble with any of that. Could well, it take, takes him away from his beloved family, murders his wife. I mean, that's what another Spoilers, way. Spoilers, Daniel. Jeez, I want to tell people that. <laughs> Hey, we're, we're outside the spoiler zone. We're spoilers all the time. You know that. True. But True, anyway, yeah, yeah. I think they got some, some pacing wrong, or some, some order is wrong here, because he was the Empire's lead engineer before, and then he left, and then they went and got him back. Yeah, I think that's right. Theoretically became their lead engineer again. I'm surprised, yeah, right. much, I'm surprised by how much they focus on Galen in the description. You'd think that he would be much, a much larger character in the story. Yeah, you know, he's... He's the guy who, you guys ever hear that old comedy routine where he's like, you make this Death Star. It's this most destructive, most powerful thing in the freaking galaxy. And who who's the real, like, numbnuts who made it to where you could shoot down this, like, ventilation port and destroy the whole thing? It was like some stand-up comedian maybe 15, 20 years ago now. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this or heard of it, but it makes me think that whoever wrote this saw that and was like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's make that yeah. like an intentional uh, weakness built into the Death Star and, and thus have this whole kind of offshoot story that sort of fits very nicely in between uh, episode, I guess, three and episode four, right? Yeah. To, 200 yeah. million to cover up a plot hole. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a great cover. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a Star Wars purist. I don't have. I I really liked the yeah. idea. I thought it was great. Yeah, I I think it's a well. Yeah, you, we kind of already know what happens right after this story, and so you sort of start seeing it being backfilled in as you watch this. I thought that was kind of neat. Yes, but this leads to problems I had with the movie. Like this is a very plot driven movie, not so much character driven. There's a definite beginning where we have a thing and we have to we know where it ends up so and these characters they've basically got to die because we know that they're not in the rebel alliance in the in the future movies so there's anyway it leads to a lot of things happening in this movie or at least several key points or not key points but points that just seem to happen because they had to happen 
and it and it kind of ruined the movie for me. There, it kind of is like you can see the writer's writing, where it's like, oh, now now he has to do something dangerous to get himself killed. All right, how are we going to figure that out? And there definitely were yeah. a few scenes like that. And and you're right about being plot driven. Like the it all the entire movie was about getting to the next MacGuffin, you know, finding yeah. the next and doing the next thing. Yeah, it it really isn't driven so much by character choices. And it's more driven by what needs to happen in order for them to do the thing, to do the thing, to get the thing, so that we're at the right spot when A New Hope starts. And yeah, for me, it was interesting, and I liked the idea of the story in the movie, and it was fun to watch, but I mean, I didn't care about any of the characters. When they died, they just died, and it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, yeah, there yeah. weren't deep characters at all. I like. Um, I think the most interesting character was that the... I forget his name, but he's Jin's love interest. The guy they kiss at the Cassian. end. Cassian. He is by far the most interesting character in this movie. I don't even know if you'd say that they're a love interest. They're, they're, there's a little bit of chemistry going yeah. on. I actually kind of appreciate they didn't just like throw in a love, like yeah, a love interest thing in there. I, I thought that they were, if anything, had a more camaraderie sort of thing Someone going on. Hold while the world ends. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go the the romance forced romance route, and it was more just like yeah, a couple of soldiers dying at the end of the battle. He mentions that he had he went through some shit, like and I, I don't remember which part they were in a carrier, and I was I was kind of wondering, okay, do tell. Yeah, it very much was just like I've got problems too. Yeah. I've been fighting since I was six, and then it was never brought up again, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I would have liked to learn more about the characters because they really just sort of serve their purpose in the plot and then they die and then that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when we, first, bit... when we first meet Cassian, isn't he meeting with a spy in Jeddah and the guy's got like mechanical legs or something and, and they attract attention from the stormtroopers. The guy says, oh, I can't climb out of here. So Cassian just shoots him. Yeah. Cold. I think he had a broken arm and he mentioned his leg or something like that. But no, yeah, that was I I thought it was a little bit ham fisted, but they made it very clear at the beginning where like these guys are pretty morally ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. so that was I'm sorry, Daniel, but uh yeah, that was Cassian I I read that scene as, you know, they had been discovered. They, he had some information about the the plot of the movie. And since he couldn't climb out of there and escape he had to kill them so that he didn't fall into the hands of the Empire so the Empire wouldn't find out about what he knew. So yeah, this was very much a guy that was willing to kill allies to serve the Rebellion. And it, it spoke to his character, for sure. Um, and he, I think he got, he got like you said, um, a better treatment character-wise than anybody else in this movie. Yeah, and you know, the, the Stormtroopers still can't shoot. That really frustrates me. Yeah, and what is the point of the armor if it's they they die from one hit as if they have zero armor. For yeah, that's the Star Wars trope that's always been true, <laughs> and people have always wondered that. Yeah, it's the most useless crap. Yeah, it literally is the plastic like shell, right? It's like useless. <laughs> or how, how you can elbow one of them in the face and they're dead. Or oh, right. that, that was happening towards the end. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's almost as bad as like. You know, in Star Trek, the original, where they're like, whoa, whoa, you know, moving around on the bridge and oh, the yeah. camera shakes. It, it almost kind of reminded me of that. Uh, the other thing I noticed with this one is that there's no Jedi, right? There's this blind monk type dude, ninja dude, who he has Jedi-like fighting abilities, but 
he's not Jedi. Like no one's. Was there any instance of actual use of the Force other than from from Vader in this movie? I don't think no. so. I think you'd call this guy Force sensitive. If I don't know, I, I've I've got a lot of friends who are into Star Wars. I'm not so much into it myself, but I've heard them use the word Force sensitive a lot. I think that's what you'd describe him as. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. He he could feel like uh, Cassian's. He has a disturbance where he's probably going to kill someone. Yeah, and she could you could tell that Jin had a like a necklace on her that someone briefly mentioned the Force about when it was being put on her. Oh right. Yeah. Her, her mom or something. I wanted to like use this chance to talk about the Force as some kind of like New Age spiritualism. Like this guy's sure. reading auras. I mean, <laughs> I guess I don't have too much to say other than that. And and you mean the uh, the blind guy in general? Like he he can't see, but he can see their aura. Like uh, in Chappelle's show, Charlie Murphy talking about seeing Rick James. He could see his aura. Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know. I didn't have too much else to say aside just from the, the polka New Age spiritualism. And, well, this came out during the 70s, didn't it? So would that be kind of a reflection of that culture? The original. The original, the, like the concept of the Force. Yeah, I've always took it as more of just like a space wizardy type power source. But I could see what you're saying, with especially with characters like Yoda and like Empire Strikes Back. Where it's, it's, it's very new agey and spiritually, where it's like the forces surrounding us at all times and don't cry and be sad when you die. You're going back into the force. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I don't necessarily know if Lucas was inspired by that kind of thing, but as most artists are, they're inspired by the world around them. So probably it definitely changes per movie. And, you know, of course, in the, the first three movies, it's kind of toned down a little bit and says there's more like, even though there's like a prophecy sort of thing going on, but I think in this one, it, they kind of turned up the, the space wizard side of it because he was doing, you know, he was walking into machine gun fire or machine blaster fire, whatever you call it, and just being fine. Like, I, I actually was kind of annoyed by the amount of like, for like, oh, the force happens and you're fine uh, around that character. Yeah, it seems kind of convenient. Like it's there when it needs to be, and then it's not there when it's not there. Uh, when he needs to, to have an, uh, uh, more adversity, but it, it's there when he needs to be able to do a thing. Yeah, that, that was another thing that just seemed like more plot driven. Like, well, he needs to be able to go over and touch that thing, so uh, he's going to have the force to be able to walk him over there. And then as soon as he touches that thing. Then the force will like abandon him and he'll get killed or something. Like, okay. Yeah, which is what happened. <laughs> he'll get killed, so the next character gets really emotional and angry and will do something rash, so he will also get killed. Right. Uh, yeah, that just happened throughout towards the end in the, the big battle scenes. Like, there's a scene where they've all arrived in this stolen freighter, right? The stolen Imperial freighter. But the stormtroopers don't necessarily know that. So they get in a fight, and there's a big firefight, the stormtroopers and the rebels. And then there's a shot of some stormtrooper throwing a grenade into the ship. Why? Why would he just all of a sudden want to blow up uh, another, an imperial ship? He doesn't know anybody's in there. He doesn't know anybody's not in there. He doesn't know it's important to the rebellion. But the plot needs the pilot guy to get killed at that point. So that's what happens. And then there's another scene at the end where Jin, the hero, is realigning the... The, the, the satellite dish. dish. Yeah. yeah. And she goes out there and she's realigning it. And then she's walking back. And then randomly, some TIE fighter guy decides to start shooting his own building because the heroine needs more adversity. Not because he recognizes 
that that little dot out there, like a mile away, is a rebel guy that he needs to kill. But because the hero needs some adversity. Yeah, and wasn't she wearing uh, some kind of yeah? She was in an imperial uniform. Yeah, ninja, how would he know? Ninja. How would how would this Tie Fighter pilot know that that person out there doing some maintenance on the satellite dish needs to get killed, and he needs to be the one to do it with his turbo lasers at that moment. It just makes no sense. And to me, it seems like it's it's just the setup. Like, you know, there's the adversity, but they've got to have that dramatic moment where she's standing on the, the outside of this tower, and then, you know, the big bad comes in with his blaster out, and that just... So then you can have Cassian be a badass and shoot him in the side of the head. Like, it was very forced. Yeah, yeah. It all seemed to be kind of a paint-by-numbers plot, and the characters needed to do what they needed to do at the right time and not well, do it. At and he time. was like a, a, a Bond villain, right? He's like, well, now we have to talk before I shoot you so that it gives the opportunity for someone to shoot me. So let's start back at the beginning or restart back at the beginning. Um, let me ask you guys at least a question or two here. Uh, so Krennic has arrived on this planet where Ben Mendelsohn's character, Galen, is living with his family. And Krennic comes down and they have like a conversation with the two, between the two men as kind of like kind of old friends. And Krennic believes that the Death Star that he's been working on his whole life, his whole career to make, is going to provide peace and security to the galaxy. And Galen's like, you're confusing peace with terror. Because that's essentially what the Death Star is. It's this overwhelming threat to basically anybody that crosses the Empire. We will use it to not only nuke you, but your entire city and your entire planet. And Krennic's response is, well, you've got to start somewhere. Is he just really, really dumb? Or does he think, is, he, is this like a commentary on government that you can bully and murder your way to peace and security? I mean, did that, did that ring true to you guys? Or it, just, it struck me as like a really dumb thing to say, but I mean, maybe it, it kind of brings true for that character. I don't know. I mean, it is him justifying his life's work, but I mean, really, you're going to provide peace and security to the galaxy with this murderous planet killing weapon? Seems that, like my dumb. thought with that is it was a justification. I didn't find it being. It didn't struck me that it that comment didn't strike me the wrong way actually. Even though it is, you know, it is something that to us is obviously ridiculous. Um, yeah, I think that half of it would be him justifying it. And the other half, I, I do think that there's a lot of people and a lot of politicians, you know, people in the military who they wouldn't phrase it as they need. We need terror to create peace, but we need military force and we need to, uh, you know, we need we need to be we need to use a lot of violence against or have the the ability to use a lot of violence in order to stop other people from harming us or thinking that it would be a good idea to rebel or anything like that. So I think I think it's half and half. I think it reminds me of speak softly and carry a big stick for some reason. Except uh, yeah. you're more shouting. Yeah. You're blowing things up. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, he's not making the argument that it's only going to be used defensively. He's saying that, yes, he admits that it's a terror weapon and that he's going to be used for terror and that that is somehow going to arrive them at peace at the end of it. But like Kokesh said in our recent episode, you can't kill your enemies faster than you make them. So when you start shooting people and killing and murdering them, uh, you can, for every one you do kill, you create 10 more because you're pissing off the family and the loved ones of those people that you're killing. So, I mean, I guess unless you're destroying planets entirely and just wiping out 
everybody that cares about anybody else in that planet. But and we're talking about a, a government in a galaxy where people travel between planets all the time. So yeah, it just strikes me as strikes me as a bit stupid. Daniel, did you did that catch on you at all? Yeah, it did. I, I just equated the guy as being an evil bastard who was a bureaucratic climber. Right, he wanted to be recognized for his accomplishments, and he was more concerned about doing uh, this task versus necessarily what it was going to be used for. Though I think he was aware of what it was going to be used for, but he was trying to climb the ranks within the the empire's hier- hierarchy. Yeah, he definitely wanted the credit because when Tarkin takes over control, yeah, every scene he's in after he's always talking to his, his higher ups that he's going to get all the credit for the Death Star and that he doesn't want anybody else to usurp that. That's true. Um, you know, it, rem- it reminds me of our, our previous episode on the Watchmen, which was the, you know, this, think of the Death Star as the equivalent of Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I could see it being like this overwhelming power that can't be fought, and so you're going to behave because of it. But it's sort of a false thing, right? Like only yeah, no, you're right. It's a giant threat. Right. Right. So then you're being forced into submission as opposed to just being a good person for the sake of being a good person. Such like a neocon sentiment. I, well, the the thing the thing that struck me about the first is that um, Galen says that he's a farmer and that it's a peaceful life. And then I immediately thought of, you know, gardening agorism kind of tactics. So that was poignant. But the Galen... In the beginning, if you look from a distance, it looks like Galen Erso has an Under Armour logo on his chest. Did you pick that up at all? Yeah, I did. No, I missed that one. Only when you zoom in can you see that the two lines are separate, but from a distance, it looks just like an Under Armour logo. Just the product placement, like they couldn't put a a can of Coke in there or a bag of... (laughs) Yeah. How do we, yeah, how do we put that into Star Wars? Um, yeah, but the other, the other thing about the Death Star specifically, I wanted to talk about how it would be Paul Krugman's, like, wet dream that the Death Star is. Yeah, it's another thing we talked about in our last episode where he's talked about alien invasions or even the, the thought of an alien invasion would spur the economy and, and all of this, like, preparation for an event like that. And yeah, the Death Star is kind of like, kind of like that, right? It's this, huge undertaking that requires government funding and it's going to create all these jobs and all of this work that needs to be done all malinvestment of course all towards blowing stuff up (laughs) but yeah he'd be a big champion of it and to krugman when it gets blown up and you have to build another one that's that's also good that's good (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if they have the wherewithal to to make another one if the first one gets blown up why aren't they making more and more of them well, so they're they have, super you know, expensive. a dozen of them. Okay. Yeah, well, I yeah. think there's just the cost, I think, is involved. It's just, I, I recently watched an episode where they tried to calculate how much material goes into a Death Star and just the cost of it in today's dollars. And I guess some, some actual real nerds did try and calculate that out. So they used those numbers. And it's something in the, in the, in the hundreds of trillions or the quadrillions or something, something crazy. Like the amount of the entire economy of a planet for just decades in order to build one. So, I mean, we are talking about a galactic empire with thousands of planets, though. So, but it's still, it's still a significant undertaking, I think. And now these crystals that they're mining on Jeddah and, and various other places, are, is that a new introduction in this film, or is that something that's part of the Star, Star Wars lore? That's definitely part of the lore. There's an, a, a deleted scene from Return of the Jedi 
where Luke goes, I don't know if it's to this planet, but he's definitely shown making his own lightsaber. That's one of the things before you're like a true Jedi is you use one of these kyber crystals to make your own lightsaber. So they are what power the lightsabers. But it's new to the, the lore that the kyber crystals are what power the Death Star. I don't think that's ever been explained, and at least not in uh, canon. I mean, maybe in the extended universe that's explained in there, but I don't know anything about that. All right, and, and that's basically the equivalent of dilithium crystals, so they're totally ripping off Kirk and Scott. Pretty much. Just some <laughs> random power source that explains away any questions you might have about how these things actually would work. How uh, how the, the power to destroy an entire planet exists in this little star station, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I liken it to, like, nuclear weaponry. It's like this tiny little compact thing, but it contains so much energy through the reactions that get detonated. But this is like a laser beam, freaking lasers, you know? Yes, this is like the Alan Parsons project. It's a laser. <laughs> I did like how uh, they did a complete throwback to the control systems on the, the Death Star. Like they had the, the big square lit, light up buttons that were the 70s style. And I don't know if they did that in the um, episodes one, two, and three where they sort of rebooted a little bit. But they totally called back to the original in in this one, which was kind of cool to see. Yeah, I'm such a yeah. Fan of things. Me too. Yeah, it's a total recreation of the old aesthetic from the first movie. But realistically, though, I mean, Krennic. I mean, when you're forcing a guy to work for you and you murder his wife, how good of a how good of a worker do you think he's really going to be? I mean, would you really want to encourage? A guy like that who's so critical and apparently has this autonomy to build in this fatal flaw into your mega super weapon? Or would you want somebody who's really gung-ho and true believer in the in the Empire? I mean, there's surely no shortage of those kind of people. The um, In the extended universe, or I, I don't know, referencing the extended universe, but I know that there are um, multiple references in other Star Wars works about um, Imperial schools, you know, like the Imperial schools or the good schools that everybody wants to get into, and like military schools and military academies. So I'm sure there's plenty of gung-ho people they could have drawn on. But I guess, you know, Galen's like the super genius. But still, I think the motivation has a little bit lacking when you murder his family. Yeah, for sure. And Galen even said, you know, as soon as I realized that they could still build this thing without me, I knew that I had to keep working on it because otherwise I would still accomplish it. And that stood out to me because wouldn't Krennic be aware of that if, like, he knows Galen and he knows what needs to be done? Or is it speaking to the bureaucrat who's overseeing a project versus the entrepreneur who's taking risk and trying to cut, develop something, kind of trying to come up with a, a product that consumers are going to buy? You know, there's, like, a different amount of uh, mental investment in something if you're, like, this bureaucratic climber who's overseeing a project versus you're trying to be profitable and solve a problem. Like, I can see two different things. Like, the Howard Hughes uh, show we did on Aviator was a, a great example of this. Like, he was the CEO of the company, the owner of the company, and he still was reading the trade magazines. He knew all about aerodynamics and engine displacements and what the lift needed to be and, and all of these things. So he could actually speak to the engineers and the plane builders and give them technical, like, direction. And it, it's, I don't see that from this Krennic guy at all. Yeah, definitely not. He's definitely a, a bureaucrat that is looking to manage his way to glory and take credit for the works of these engineers who are, yeah, just a bunch of nerds. 
who he frickin' murders, by the way. <laughs> well, after they've outlived their usefulness, yeah. Who cares? Kill him. That's almost like seizing the means of production. And then what happens when that breaks? Like, you're kind of up Shit Creek at that point. Yeah, it's very short-sighted because the, the star would have to be, you'd assume it would be extremely complicated and just, it would take a lot of time just to figure out what, like, the documents are. You know, because theoretically, if, if the head scientist is the only one who actually realizes that there's this flaw in there, then it's so complicated that even his other engineers uh, don't understand the whole. Yeah, there should have been a scene where he has them all train their replacements, and then after they've been replaced after like a couple of weeks, like a montage, then he has them murdered. Because yeah, in the real world, when you when you when you like have a guy retiring or something like that, wouldn't you have him? He's got a lot of specialized knowledge. You'd want to have him pass on that knowledge before you got rid of him? Yeah, they're just going to assume the, this planetoid-sized machine won't have any interruptions or breakdowns in any of its systems ever. Real dumb. And that was All another right. thing, another scene that bugged me, uh, talking about plot. They are arriving on this planet to kill Jay- Galen, and the plane has to crash because they have to have the signal, the, the transmissions to the rebel base go out, so the, the weather has to be bad, so the plane crashes, so then they have to send in the X-Wings, but the X-Wings have to be able to kill a bunch of the people, so they have this weird, awkward ceremony kind of like meeting out in the rain, which I don't know if you guys know bureaucrats, but I don't think bureaucrats like to get wet. <laughs> that's a really good that's point. Where the, that's where the pleads they get wet. I mean, if, if, if Krennic's arriving, and he's like this big muckety-muck, I mean, when has ever a president or a, a big muckety-muck general guy just to stand out in the middle of the rain. <laughs> that <just> never happened. <laughs> yeah, well, they had to be out on this precipice, right, for dramatic effect. It's, it's sort of like when she had to go and, and realign the dish, you know. They had to make it be on the end of this thing, and then this TIE fighter had to happen to shoot the the pathway for her to get back just for dramatic effect or something. Yeah, like, why are those controls all the way out there? Why aren't they with the rest of the controls in the central hub? It makes no sense. Yeah, who would engineer it that way? <laughs> Unless you had to like, <laughs> physically see it, but if, as the size of that thing was, even as far out as she went, she wouldn't be able to see like the relative position of the of the thing is so big, you know. And, and you'd be talking about fractions of an angle if you're trying to align this to point at something in space. So you couldn't do it by sight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now this might be a good time to talk about the whole aligning it anyway. Like there was this shield around this planet, right? And there was this gateway that's over it, and I've got an image of that. And apparently that was maintaining a, a, a barrier that even the signal couldn't get out of. And this totally reminded me of Spaceballs, where yeah. they vacuum the air out with the Hoover. The yeah, from the Hoover. space shield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, are they, are they ripping off Spaceballs here, or was this part yeah. of lore prior to 1986? This is, this is another plot point. Because they can't just have, uh, they have to have a space battle and they, they can't just have the, the, the heroes be able to leave the planet. They couldn't just have them say, well, we could just steal a ship and then escape after we've gotten a thing. There needs to be a, a shield that prevents them from escaping so that they die. That, that's what, uh, had me. Cause I don't think it, there's ever another space shield in the Star Wars universe except for this one that I know, other than the one that goes around the Death Star in Return of the Jedi. But that's where there's a generator on the nearby moon of Endor. Uh, so I guess, I mean, large shields exist. And I guess it's just 
this one is able to generate its own shield on this planet. Ah, I guess it's all right, whatever. Right, but then the shield gets destroyed, so then they could have escaped, but then the Death Star shoots the planet and creates this giant tsunami, which is bizarre, right? Like, why would they destroy their own, like, archive base? Yeah. If that's the only yeah. place where all this technical, like, intricate information is, and they've already killed all the engineers and the scientists, now they're going to destroy <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, and, and all the information as well. Yeah, and Tarkin makes that decision, like, right away, right as soon as the, the Death Star shows up. And, like, he doesn't even have all the information of what's going on, like the situation on the ground. He just arrives and is like, get ready to fire. Why? Because we need to kill all the characters, that's why. Oh, okay. Yeah, it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, yeah, no, yeah other than to protect the, 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 the readout data. Like, he just doesn't care about his own people and whatever, all that stuff. He's just going to try and save this technical data. But that would require him knowing that there's a flaw in the Death Star, right? Because later on in A New Hope, he's like, Psh, there's no flaw in this thing. This thing's invincible. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, like earlier when we started talking about this, I was like, yeah, this kind of fits in between episode three and four, and that's kind of a nice way to sort of offshoot and explain away some, you know, how, how we start off, how we get where we are. But you're right. They're, they're trying to fit this round peg into a square hole a little bit. You want another problem? I'll give you I another do. problem. Give me another problem. So so Vader, at the very end, he's like chopping up bodies, and it's a really badass scene. He's like a super badass ninja killer. And he's just mowing through these rebels. And he sees the plans, like the copy of this, you know, the readout from the Death Star, and they're like handing it off like football style, like, here, you take it, you take it. And he knows it's going, and he gets inside the blockade runner and takes off. Then if you watch New Hope, they like capture the ship instead of just blowing it out of the sky like any sane person would do. He would just like, I know it's there, so I'm just going to blow it up. And instead, he captures it and like interrogates Leia, and Leia like pretends like she doesn't have it and she's on a diplomatic mission, even though five minutes beforehand <laughs> she just escaped from Vader. It, it's the most bullshit reason. Like, she knows, and he knows that she knows that she just escaped from him. It kind of ruins the beginning of New Hope for me. So that's a problem. All right, did you guys get just get blown out of the nerd water there, or... Do you follow what <laughs> you're talking about? I I get what you're what you're saying, and it it reminds me when I first saw The Force Awakens, I was like, yeah, I really like it. And then the more I thought about, it, the more I was like, God, that's just a garbage plot. And now now this is happening to Rogue One. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is what we do. We destroy movies almost all the time. When we talk about critically talk about a movie, it pretty much dissolves from this is a pretty good movie to uh, yeah, I guess this really wasn't a very good movie. <laughs> Yeah, there's been countless times where there's been a movie that's like 10 years old, and I, I used to really enjoy it, and I'm like, well, now that we've analyzed it, Robert, <laughs> it's garbage, you know? Like, there's all these problems with it. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, our audience, and sorry, sorry, you guys. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. Yeah. I will say, I actually really enjoyed it. It's, it's a blockbuster. You're not supposed to think, but I enjoyed the action. Normally, I'm not like that, but I have got a, a, a special pot spot for Star Wars, so I will, with no with no shame, say that I liked watching this with my brain off. Yeah, and for me, I don't really, I don't know enough about Star Wars. I didn't know, I did not beforehand, before seeing this, know enough about Star Wars to really pick it apart and, and be like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense, and that doesn't make sense, but I, the thing I enjoyed the most about this movie was that it was gritty and it was realistic, and, like, people died, and it was violent, at least more violent 
and past. PG-13 violence. Yeah, PG-13 violence, but I didn't, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, I agree with you guys. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. But I I, say, just before you do, um, yeah. I want to just agree that, yeah, if you, if you definitely turn your brain off and you can just enjoy the, I mean, it's a very pretty movie. It looks very, I mean, the special effects are going crazy and it looks like a Star Wars movie more than absolutely those first three, uh, prequel movies. So absolutely for that. But yeah. Okay. So what do you want to get into, Daniel? Well, I just want to talk about Jin a little bit as a character and, and what you guys each thought of her because she's kind of wishy-washy on this whole thing. You know, she's sort of this reluctant rebel, but then all of a sudden she's giving these speeches about hope, like very Obama style. And it yeah. seemed just a little bit weird, a little bit preachy. And, well, and there was definitely a, a sudden shift. Yeah, like, so in the beginning, she's a reluctant, she's like, I don't want to deal with any of this rebellion bullshit. Leave me alone, leave me out of it. Here, I'm going to go do this thing for you, and then I'm out. And then her dad dies, and then suddenly she's fully on board. Hey, let's go do this thing. This is super important. we got to fight back. And yeah, for me, it was a big sudden shift that really the character didn't earn. The character didn't earn that shift. But I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, from our uh, Liberty Weekly guys. I would agree. Uh, it's it was more you know, like she saw the hologram of her dad and now, oh, I've got a mission, you know, and I I do think it was too quick. And I felt like there probably should have been some like, fine, if anything, there should have been some of her being like, OK, I'll do this. But when I'm done, I've, I've had enough of this rebel stuff. I want my simple life back. And that totally wasn't the case. It was 180 from I don't want any of this rebel nonsense to like, OK, destroy the empire. I'm willing to die yeah. for. Th- yeah, we have to. You have to do it, regardless, no matter what, because they're gonna get us. Yeah, yeah. I was really excited to have the kind of like reluctant angle, to be honest, and I was a little disappointed that it uh, ended because I, I think that I that's something that you really haven't seen in Star Wars, from what I can recall. Except Han Solo is kind of he always gets roped into it, doesn't he? I suppose into doing stuff. Well, I I kind of wanted to deconstruct the statement rebellion. Rebellions are based on hope because she she yes, was around towards the end. And wouldn't you want a rebellion built upon principle? I mean, hope is good too, but it very much was like let's have something that we can say in a trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it seems like they're talking about how rebellion needs to be based on hope because they're under such a overwhelming odds. Like the empire is just so powerful and the rebellion is so tiny and puny. But we don't really see that. Um, the every time that there's like a fight, it's fairly well matched, or the rebels win. There's never a time when they're just like running for their lives because the the empire's just super strong. Except when the tiny little force lands on that final planet at the end, then yeah, they're running away from the ATAT walkers and whatnot. But yeah, it, it seems like a rebellion based on hope. I would, first of all, yes, I agree. I'd rather have a rebellion based on principle, but. If it has to be based on hope, then I think the the other yeah, odds need to be really super stacked against them, and then just up against this overwhelming force. But it, it really seemed far too balanced for me. That's, yeah, I, that's a good point. Uh, not yeah, to I, mention how a lot of times these these fights happen so suddenly, where like the rebels are like, "Oh wait, we got to be there now," and then they can just they can just do it. It's really fast. It's like these <laughs> yeah, are doing stuff on their own. They're defecting from the rebel alliance. Then the rebel alliance decides, "Ah, oh, yeah, I guess we should," and then they're just right there and that that stretched my suspension of disbelief yeah yeah, yeah at least like in star trek they have to travel for some time you know like certain number of hours at warp speed or something and this is just like hyper jump boom you're there 
be the plot. Yeah, there's even a there's even a scene where they're yeah killing uh, Galen, where they call in the strike, and then oh we can't call him back because they're already engaging, and it's like one minute taking place. <laughs> like what? Is there really no distance between these places? Are our ships so fast? Like in the original Star Wars, it takes them like hours or days for places to get you know people to get to different planets and whatnot. Like the Millennium Falcon, the fastest ship in the galaxy. Goes from Tatooine to, um, come on, the place they blew up. I can't remember. It's not going to head. Um, anyway. Alderaan. Yeah, it takes them a while. Alderaan, yeah. yeah. They're going to Alderaan yeah. and it takes them like hours. Not in movie time, but you know, you get the sense that it's taking them a long time to get there. Not to mention this, uh, when they're doing the strike and it's like, oh, we can't call it off. It's like, what, did they just turn off their radios? Like, have we had an issue <laughs> outside of the shield? where we haven't been able to communicate with people on the planet? Because, like, the, the U-Wing, they're able to communicate while they're on the planet when the radio, when the transceiver's, like, fixed on it. So why would these X-Wings not have a similar capability? It very was, very much was, like, oh, we just got to we gotta have another space fight. We got to have things blowing up. Yeah, and we got to be able to kill Galen so that Jin has the motivation to join the Rebel Alliance so that the plot can keep on going. Very much so. You're absolutely right. All right, so let's talk about why there's no Jedi, and and they blow up Jedha, but this is in between episodes three and four, right? And I haven't seen three, but there's Jedi all over four, five, and six, and there's Jedi all over one and two, and I imagine on three, so why are there no Jedi in this? Okay, do you want the nerd answer, or do you want, like, the movie answer? I want both. Give me both. Okay, in the movie answer, there really isn't one, but the nerd answer with all the cartoons and the alternate books and whatnot after the third movie um there's in the third movie there's order 66 where the emperor orders all the clone troopers to turn on their jedis master type people leader people and they murder them all and so there's only a few jedi left in the movie world but in the in the alternate in the extra materials vader goes on like this 20-year mission to murder jedi he's just hunting them down and killing them so in by the time you get to a new hope there's only a few left. There's Yoda and Obi-Wan, and then there's a few that aren't mentioned in the movies. But Yoda and Obi-Wan believe that they're the last of the Jedi until Luke, and then, of course, Leia. So, yeah, basically because the, the Empire's been murdering them for 20 years is the, the story. But that's not mentioned in Rogue One at all. But, you know, it's you got to try to find a line. I mean, you can't explain everything, but it is a good question. Right, but they do make a big deal out of destroying Jeddah, which is where they're from, right? That's the traditional, yeah, home, original. The original Jedi Temple is on Jeddah, and there are Jedi Temples all over the galaxy, but that is the, the uh, supposedly the first one, which is like a holy site now to the two characters, the Guardians of the Wills, which is the original name of Star Wars for those who wanted to know. It's like something like Luke Skywalker and his adventure with the Guardian of the Wills. Don't quote me on that. Something like that. But the Guardians of the Wills is the the Wills are these people that guard like the the, the power of the Force. And um, Obi Wan was able to talk to them and converse with them, and that's how he's able to turn into a Force ghost. I'm hitting you with all kinds of nerd knowledge, Daniel. And it's all a bunch of stuff that you don't care about. <laughs> all right, that's good. So. I feel like we've talked a lot about just the movie in general and a little bit on the plot, but uh, do you guys have like a couple more notes and we can just sort of hit a few more things? And I, I, I imagine we, we don't need to go like super long. I mean, we've kind of already beat up some of this. 
But do you guys, do you guys have a few notes on your end, Liberty Weekly boys? Yeah, my specifically, I was wondering how the empire could even exist at all. I mean, you got to think about these huge military payments. What kind of financial system does the galaxy have? Do they have a central bank? I heard something about credits, so I assume that that is yeah completely cashless society. Yeah, I'm sure. So. They got these credits. They can probably inflate the currency at will. Uh, at what point does hyperinflation happen? Is the, is the currency backed by anything? I doubt it. And so I just don't, I, I don't even believe that the empire can even exist at all. And if you, you have a bunch of planets that are spread out in a disparate galaxy, how, how can you realistically have a yoke on all of them without, you know, having a massive, massive military budget? That was my critique. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In the different movies, we see, you know, the fleets of the, like, the Empire fleet and, like, the Rebel fleet. And you're talking, like, you know, a significant number of ships. But, really, you're talking, like, maybe a few dozen Star Destroyers and, like, a couple Super Star Destroyers and then, you know, a whole bunch of TIE Fighters and smaller ships and things like that. But, I mean, even if you had a few hundred or a few thousand of those kind of ships, you're still not able to effectively you know, police, I guess you could call it, like the tens of thousands of planets in the uh, solar system, or I mean, sorry, in the galaxy. And I know that the um, there's a line in, I forget which movie it is, maybe it's New Hope. I think it is New Hope, yeah, when they dissolve the Senate. Because, you know, the Senate is, as we know, it's a method and a tool of control, and you give people the, the, the illusion of a choice. Like, as you said earlier, Daniel, if voting changed anything, they wouldn't allow it. So they have the Senate, and then they dissolve it. And the they have an argument like, well, what's going to keep the uh, systems under control without this bureaucracy, without this illusion of control? And um, they say that the space station will, the Death Star will, with the fear is the answer. So that's, I guess, your answer that's provided in the movies. And we can definitely discuss on whether that is a realistic thing or not, whether it would be enough. I don't believe that disbanding the Senate makes any sense because since when do you cut jobs in like the mili- in the government? <laughs> I would really, on a more serious note, like all those people would be really pissed off and they're going to, they have, they would have at least some influence. And so they would be banging up every crow's nest trying to get people mad that they, you know, cause the thing that the politician actually cares about is the fact that they've got a uh, power. And if that's, if that's taken from them, they would, I would assume, do quite a bit to try to uh, get people mad and try to disrupt things within the empire. So I, I would imagine, you know, if you're the emperor, that you would be like, no, they'll still exist, but we'll just, they'll, they'll be lame ducks. They won't actually have any power. I think that would be a much more a realistic solution to having a, 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 a Senate that can influence politics. Would, wouldn't be to get rid of it. It would just be to make it ineffective. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, but as we know, um, as this move, these set of movies are allegories, essentially, to the United States and Germany. And it's all essentially supposed to be World War II in space. And uh, if you watch the prequels, you get the sense that George Lucas is very much um, responding to, like, George Bush, George W. Bush, and saying how you know, dictators are bad, but democracy is good. And how the evil empire will get rid of democracy, and that's why they're bad. But that the rebellion wants to reinstitute the the old republic with the senators and the bureaucracy, and how that's a good thing. 
this is essentially George Lucas's commentary that democracy is good and dictatorship is bad. And, uh, yeah, both are, both are bad <laughs> from my point of view. One thing that always plexes me is how in our society people equate democracy with republicanism, with a republican government. And I don't like the United States was never meant to be a democracy. It was always a republic. And I, I don't know how people can still conflate that and make that mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're talking about a, a lefty liberal. Exactly. His understanding of, 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 of how the world works and how, what's good and what's bad. I, I mean, just, it's been thousands of years and the Greeks still talk about how, you know, their greatest contribution to the world is democracy and how wonderful it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they, still, they still take pride in it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, and so I was, I was thinking, so on Jeddah, that's where they're, they're mining these crystals. Uh, if you do an analysis of what life is like in the city, like, yeah, you have the stormtroopers walking around, but it looks like trade is pretty damn prosperous. I mean, you got people walking around. It looks like they don't have a bunch of permits that are stapled on their little uh, market stalls. And so I'm thinking, you know, without without having literally stormtroopers patrolling every single neighborhood across the entire galaxy, how are you go- going to enforce your regulations? How can you prevent agorist activities from happening. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Han Solo makes his living as a smuggler. And yeah, you'd imagine that there are plenty of black market opportunities all over the place. And it, and it could be the disconnect between, you know, George Lucas or liberals associating that kind of totalitarian state with the regulation on the free market. Because honestly, if you look at Venezuela, they have 50, every restaurant has like 30 permits that must be posted on the wall. And there's signs everywhere saying, don't do this, no smoking, no guns. Well, th- you don't see any of that in Jeddah. And it looks like, you know, people are doing pretty well there, to be honest. Until the Death Star right. blows them up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny yeah. that they, uh, just as a, on a technical note, it's funny that they blow up. They're like, well, we just need to blow up Jeddah City. Well, and they do, and they blow it up. And then there's like this super slow motion, like like blast radius that eventually blows up the place, but not before the heroes can escape. But that blast, that shockwave, and the um, the fallout from that explosion would cover that planet for decades, blot out all kinds of life. I mean, when a massive volcano explodes, it darkens the the sunlight. So anyway, just the idea that you need to blow up a planet to blow up a planet, when in reality you can just blow up like a small piece of the planet, and that'll do your dirty work for you. Anyway, not important. Daniel, what were we gonna say, buddy? Daniel. Oh, uh, when when they're on Jeddah and the Empire's there, like searching for the spy or, or whatever it was, they have a PA saying, we're here to help to provide security and safety for citizens of Jeddah. The Empire loves you, and we're here to go after the evil terrorist Saw Garrow or whatever his name is. And it was like this propaganda thing that is really just to make them sound like they're the good guys, when I'm pretty sure they know they're the bad guys. But it's like something that they, they do to tell themselves that they're, they're justified in, in what they're doing. When I saw parallels at the the beginning of the movie, too, when the stormtroopers show up, they look more like a SWAT team. And in fact, our SWAT teams looked more heavily equipped than the stormtroopers that showed up to get Galen Erso. Yeah, so what do you guys think? Uh, any other points, or should we start doing the overall ratings and impressions? Yeah, I mean, as, as, as the movie goes along and then kind of devolves into the big battle scene, I've kind of already aired my gripes about it. I am interested if there's anything our Liberty Weekly boys want to talk about in terms of, well, I definitely want to get into the um, 
you know, what happens, what's the end game of the, uh, the Rebel Alliance and how they would just turn into the new empire? Because, I mean, they're, they're not going to conquer the empire and then just recede back into their old lives. This is uh, an empire or a rebel, a rebellion led by senators, governors, generals. They have a top-down like command structure that's kind of egalitarian. Like they, like the top brass, like meet together in this council, and then they all kind of decide. Kind of, but yeah, they would absolutely instill some kind of bureaucratic totalitarian control system, and they would quickly become the thing that they're trying to destroy. I mean, there wouldn't be necessarily the Sith in control of it, but since when does that matter? Good intentions that do the most harm. Yeah. Well, I saw a lot of parallels between this and the American Revolution, specifically uh, in the sense that in your everyday life, actually being a citizen of the colonies was was not as oppressive as you would think. Actually, the, the, the colonists had a lot of um, ability to regulate themselves and a lot of self-governance, but... Once you, you get the overthrow of the, I mean, the, essentially the colonies are pretty, they're pretty laissez-faire. I guess they, they deal with the representation issue, but they had representation in parliament. It just wasn't local representation, which is what they wanted. And so essentially what you have is the revolution happens and then they instill the Articles of Confederation. Uh, but then you get the, the hostile, the takeover, which I would argue is the constitution. And then you get the the government that's more powerful, that's even closer to home. And, you know, Jefferson was talking about, he always referred to the federal government as our foreign government. And so I thought there was the interesting parallel there. And I think that essentially if the Rebel Alliance takes over and they can do whatever they want, you'd have that. Maybe it'd be a slow devolution, I would think. A slow devolution into eventually becoming the empire? Yeah, yeah. And, and through the bureaucratic state or through the politicking of it instead of an overt overthrow. Yeah, because maybe they start off with good intentions, but like we know, I mean, the best intentions, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, so uh, the, the the most corrupt and evil people are going to want to become pow- gain positions of power in this new republic, or whatever you want to call it, and it'll eventually grow out of control. And I mean, that's that's how governments work. That's how they grow. Daniel, would you join the rebellion? Baby, I'm in the rebellion right now. That's what yeah. we're doing. That's what this show is What would is all you do? About. What would you do to convince them to to break down, to tear down the the evil empire? Tear down this wall? Well, I'd start a show talking about movies that are popular in that culture. <laughs> <laughs> Called actual that's energy. What, that's what Luke should have done, right? That's right. He would have had a lot more fun. Um, yeah, he would have. Well, I wanted to, I guess, equate... Is it is it the use of violence itself that corrupts the rebellion was my question, because can you have a political uh, and I would argue that the American Revolution was one of the most ideologically pure revolutions that we can point to. And even the fact that even though it was ideal, ideologically pure, it still resulted in arguably one of the most powerful and most tyrannical governments that we've known. Right. And so I'm thinking that you if you. If you are a, mem- a citizen of the galaxy, your best bet is just to sit back. Or if you are in the Rebel Alliance, maybe your best be- bet is to sit back and let the Empire dissolve because of infrastructure problems and <laughs> the Paul Krugmanite spending. And and so therefore, you just let the galaxy break apart into the, its own political units. 
that or go to the rim because there is, you know, there's kind of a, an equivalent of a wild west yeah. within the universe. And so if you wanted to be outside of the, the grasps of the empire, there are more lawless places that you could visit and live. Yeah. You could kind of move to quote unquote Somalia or whatever, or like you say, yeah, let, uh, let the empire collapse kind of like Roman, Roman style. Yeah. But they can Under stay solid longer than, than we can stay sane or safe from their violence that's a big question like trying to wait them out i mean people have been doing that for lifetimes yeah so daniel are you are you advocating for the the rebellion or are you saying that they're just doing it wrong well i think they are doing it wrong i think they're using the ends to justify the means but they don't even know what they're trying to accomplish really i mean yeah there's no principle yeah and and like the death star just became they were just became aware of it in this movie right rogue one like where they learn the name of what the Death Star is and, and even first heard about it. And their their whole mission at that going forward in this lore is destroy the Death Star and then destroy it again. Right. But that's pretty much all that their plan is. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's like never a, what, like an, an emperor assassination plot or, I don't know, I mean, any number of other things that people use to destroy failed states or destroy states. Like, I mean, they don't have their equivalent of the CIA who goes out and, does some sort of a coup like we did in Iran or in any number of other countries that the, the CIA does. Um, yeah, there's any number of ways that if you're if you're willing to use violence to change out dictators, uh, that could be a storyline, I suppose. If I was in the rebellion and you know I could make decisions for it, I would actually be advocating for a, a decentralization of the like command structure of it and it. And like the groupings of it, if that makes sense. So instead of there being one large offensive and defensive force, I would instead have a lot of small uh, defensive forces throughout the galaxy. And so when when the Empire comes to some planet and they're like, hey, we're in charge of this place now, you can use guerrilla warfare and that sort of thing. And you can do your warfare on a, a much tighter budget than the Empire is doing. And I I just know that something that I've learned I think is really interesting is that uh, Native American tribes within the United States were the ones that were less centralized were harder to conquer because you couldn't you it wasn't one battle that you had to or just a couple battles that you had to win against one force it was many many small battles against people who uh, there wasn't someone who could tell them that to stop fighting because you know these decentralized tribes didn't have someone who with the authority to do that, so it was a lot easier in American history to conquer centralized Native American tribes. And I would try to use that kind of strategy if I was part of the rebellion, where instead I would be fighting exclusively defensively, and I would try to wait. I, I would, in, in a sense, wait for you know the empire to run out of money, run out of the willpower to fight and kind of play a, a long game. And hopefully it wouldn't be so long that I would, you know, hopefully it'd be short enough that I would see the end of it. But I think that would actually be even the most realistic way to deal with it. I, I've heard people say that even if the the South didn't centralize its armies and instead fought strictly, you know, defensively, um, that it would have had a better chance of winning the American Civil War. And you mean like yeah. house house by house, street by street? Kind of style. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's a good point in history in that states go to war with other states, 
you know, and you can conquer and you can win a war against a top-down command structure. Like the United States won the war against Hitler because that that state was all organized around him and his top-down command structure. But and there's no winning a war on terrorism. There's no leader of terrorism. There's no, you know, there's there's these little groups and going out and doing their own thing. So I think you're absolutely right. When a country has an incentive to um, to take over another country, like they don't wipe out the command structure, you know, and just like have it be some kind of anarchic system. They come in and they replace the top-down control structure that's already there, that's already in place. Because you can't just like, it's like herding cats. You don't want to go in and then set up a whole system, like you're saying, that's too much work. It's too expensive. It's, it's you're not getting enough reward. It's, you go in there anyway. and you, yeah, you go in there and you take over a place that already has a, a government and you just replace that government with your own government. Like you instill a new leader. That's like way easier than, you know, like herding the cats of people that are not used to being ruled. You know, you've got these people that are already used to being ruled. And we'll go along with, oh, well, we got a new leader now. Okay. Well, my life doesn't change a whole lot. I'm already used to being ruled. There's a different guy now. It's like we had an election. It's not a big deal. I mean, he looks a little different maybe, or maybe instill one of our own people, but now he's a puppet of, you know, the new empire. Yeah, I like your approach way better. I like it. A decentralized, you know, natural resistance sort of thing. And I think that there's a lot less moral ambiguity in that situation, too. If if you're only fighting against people who are directly uh, threatening your life, is a lot less morally questionable than having offensive fights and bringing fleets to you know their their bases to destroy your enemy stuff. I think that um, it's although it may not, I, I don't know if I would say that it's necessarily moral. It's a lot easier to make the case that it is that it could be. Yeah, and I want to detract a little bit from what I said too because I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily equate violence itself or the use of violence as corrupting the rebellion itself. It would be the immoral use. So in your situation, or or I wouldn't want to say that the American Revolution or the early American experience was corrupted because we immorally used violence. Uh, but but within you know what you're proposing, I think that'd be a lot more apt. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an okay. aside, speaking about uh, taking control of other governments, the the two exceptions in one of the, there's two exceptions in history that I can think of where uh, the governments of a country were actually destroyed and they weren't replaced. And those are Japan and West Germany. And I just think it's funny to mention that those two places had incredible economic growth because of the lack of a mm. strong government. I just think that's a, a neat uh, fact from history. Yeah. And there's also the Gandhi approach, the peaceful just noncompliance. Um, and garnering public opinion to your cause. And eventually that caused the, uh, the British government to relent and back off from their colonial rule of India. So if you could garner enough public support for your system to be free of the empire, maybe it would behoove the empire to leave you alone at that point. I, I think so, that yeah. that's the, the best way to do it, actually, to, to be honest. You know, like if I was going to make a choice in my own life, it would be the Gandhi approach. Yeah, it's definitely the most morally unambiguous, for sure. Just I just choose to non-go away, not compliant, and um, let everybody know that what's happening is unjust. And people have a ingrained sense of justice. We have uh, empathy. We can see when something is not right, and we can uh, decry. That's 
sort of thing. So yeah, you can make it very uncomfortable. Like, you know, if, if, if England is brutalizing everybody in India and enough people hate that, well, let's boycott British products and we'll decry it in the press and we'll make it very uncomfortable and unprofitable for Britain to continue their policies there. So the same thing could be done on a larger scale, I think, in the, uh, with the empire. So yeah, well, anything else, driving. guys? Thanks, buddy. I think that's all the points that we want to bring up. All right. Well, then we've reached the point of our show where we ask you guys for your rating, and it's essentially a thumbs-up, thumbs-down scale. We do black and gold is the good rating, and black and red is the bad rating. And <laughs> sure you guys know what that's all about. Um, I did introduce another new one for Watchmen. It was the agorist flag. It was black and gray because I was, I was, the jury was still out because it's a movie that you need to watch more than once to have it all make sense and understand what's really going on. So with Watchmen, I need to actually watch it one more time, and then I'll be able to give it a, a final legitimate rating. But what what do you guys think of your uh, of this movie? What's your rating for it? Uh, we'll start with Patrick. Well, I think on the on the surface level, I'd give it a gold and black, or a yellow and black, I guess. I think there's a lot of plot holes that you guys have brought up that I didn't necessarily think of that kind of tarnish it. And with the character development not being super great, um, but with the, the grittiness and the dirt and um, all that kind of stuff and everyone dying, uh, I think it brought a little realism to it. I would have liked more civilian portrayal of civilian costs, but I thought it was a, it was a good turn. So I'll give it I'll give it a yellow and black. All right. Very good. And uh, Jerry, what's your thoughts on this? I. I, I'm a little bit conflicted, but I'm going to say red and black because on the surface, it looks good. On the surface, you're like, man, this is, this is a lot, this is a lot of fun. This is a great movie. But then when you really look into it, you realize that there's, uh, really big flaws. So I'm going to say red and black. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on board with the red and the black. I, although I like the points made in its favor. It does look good. Um, the brutality of war, people dying. That's good stuff. Um, it, and it also, it has also tried to do something different, which is kind of cool. Um, in the Star Wars universe, there's kind of a, kind of a, like a, uh, a formula. What makes a good Star Wars movie? And this, and this movie kind of moved away from that. It, so I give it some points for being different and showing the realistic side of war and then also looking just absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, for the, uh, the character problems and the plot problems, uh, and the way it affects the rest of the, the movie universe in a negative way, uh, yeah, red and black for me. Daniel? Wow, this is the first time we've actually done a red and black uh, rating for a movie. I'm, I'm kind really? of surprised. Yeah, yeah. all of our movies, you know, our show is all about agreeing with each other or having guests come on <laughs> and agree with us. <laughs> <laughs> and also apparently having uh, gold and black uh, movies until today. So this is good. This is good. Um, I, I will give it a golden black, though. I, I enjoyed the movie, even though it had some plot holes, but I thought they were trying to do something really cool, which was like an offshoot, fill-in-the-gaps story to where they didn't have to stray too far. I mean, unless you're a nerd like Robert and know uh, a lot of the backstory and, and the, well, in this cartoon version, they do this, and in this graphic novel version, they do this other thing. Uh, I, I felt like this was a nice like way to get the plans of the Death Star onto the ship with Leia. And so I kind of appreciate that. And I also appreciate the smart-ass robot. Oh, yeah. Uh, which we didn't really even talk about him. But yeah. uh, he's, he had some good liners, good good one-liners in it. Yeah, the great uh, Alan Tudyk, who um, 
made his big name in uh, Serenity. And, yeah, he's a big uh, kind of a nerd hero. So, yeah, he did a good job, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and he's in Firefly, and you guys are talking about moving to the far reaches of, of the horizon of the galaxy, and, and that's essentially what they do in Firefly, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, great series. Would recommend. Yeah. We could tie all of these, like, universes together, and they'd all have their little niche, their little area, and they could all coexist together. That's probably the mashup they're going to do. You know, they've done Freddy versus Jason and Predator versus Alien. Like, why not, right? <laughs> roll, There's roll probably some. Captain Kirk back out. <laughs> there you go, wheel him out in his wheelchair. Yeah, so so that's my rating, black and gold. So we got we got a mixed bag here, but uh, I yeah, think it was a it was a fun it. movie overall. See that I I would I would watch this again. I enjoyed it. I I thought we I thought everyone else was going to be a little bit more critical, but I I stand by my rating that it looks good on the surface, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't look good underneath. But I I did genuinely enjoy the movie. All right, well thanks for not giving into that peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one final note on William Shatner. He was the lead headline speaker at Freedom Fest in Vegas this year, and apparently he's a libertarian in quotes. So wow. I, looked, I did not know that. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if he is or not. I haven't looked into like what he said about it, but yeah, funny side note. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, maybe Edward he's Shatner. grown since uh, Star Trek Two, where he said that the the good of the uh, many outweigh the good of the few, or the one between him and Spock. Yeah, I mean, he also has to say the lines that are written so i mean if i was in his place i would i'd play i'd, I'd say that line too right you're gonna pay me to say this all right i'll say it <laughs> <laughs> i am a capitalist <laughs> all right guys well hey thank you so much for for joining us uh you guys' website is libertyweekly.net and uh you guys do great work over there uh you want to just do a, a final plug for yourselves um uh, for our audience yeah um so we're we're um Really looking, we had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, it was a great deal of, uh, you know, good connecting with you guys. And now, now there's like, now we know you guys. So just interacting is not computer screens and stuff like that. So, uh, it's been a whole lot of fun. Uh, we're, we're going strong. We've been building a listenership base. Uh, we have a lot of cool things in store. Uh, right now we're working on an ebook. Uh, we're thinking about setting up a Patreon. Uh, gonna see how that goes, but, we're just going to keep plugging along and make connections and have people on and see where it goes. URLs. Yeah. What do you mean? And uh, you can find us at libertyweekly.net. And is there any other places they should check out? Um, I, we're on all the major social media platforms and even Steam it, Minds, and Gab. So we're in those markets too. Very cool. And that's just uh, Liberty Weekly generally, like on Twitter or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, it's been a lot of fun having you guys on, and you're definitely welcome to come on again. I know we've talked about maybe doing Napoleon Dynamite together. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can get together and do that coming up soon. Yeah, be looking forward to, uh, you know, interacting with you guys more. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah, our pleasure. Yeah, well, thanks again, and thank you, audience, for joining us for this episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast. It's episode 35, so that's at actualanarchy.com slash 35 with the boys from Liberty Weekly, libertyweekly.net. We're not going to do overdrive tonight because it's pretty late for them, but and we already did a bunch of uh, pre-show stuff that will be available for the Patreon subscribers in the behind the scenes. So if you want to support us there, you can find all of the ways to support us or buy merchandise from us at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar and give us uh, likes, comments, subscribes, and shares on the social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And uh, I'll say may the force be with you. Thank you guys very much for joining us, and good night for me. Good job, audience. Thanks for listening.
been fantastic. Take care. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do